Welcome to the Boonville Worship Center Sermon Podcast. Welcome. Uh, This is how we're going to do this today. We're going to do baptisms during our worship time, like we did a a few weeks ago. So uh, I'm going to have those that are being baptized uh, come forward up here with me and I'm going to have them introduce themselves and share a little bit of something with you uh, if they if they would so let's do that now all of you that are being baptized you guys want to come down here come on boys let's give them a hand amen yay God yay God JJ's ready to go I told him no cannonballs but we'll see how that works out but I do not want my shirt to be wet, JJ, so let's take it easy in the in there. Amen. But isn't God good? Amen. I tell you, what we're going to do today is we're going to celebrate with all of heaven new life. Amen. As each one of these individuals are baptized, and we're just so grateful for His grace and mercy. So I'm going to let them just introduce themselves and share a little something if they want to. Amen. So I'm Casey. I was baptized several years ago, but I didn't what I was doing, and now I do, so. I am a niche, and I want to serve Jesus. Uh, I'm, J- oh, I'm JJ, and I love Jesus. Um, my name's Shy. I started going here about a couple weeks ago. Um, after Ashton Pryor passed away, I turned to the Lord, and I just kept hearing a voice say, go to the church over and over again and ever since I turned to him I've been a lot happier and content with my life and I just want to serve the Lord. I'm so thankful. Amen. We recognize you. We say and we declare you are King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There is no other There is no other, there is no other but Jesus. Jesus, you are King of kings and you are Lord of lords and you are worthy of all praise and all honor. There is no one besides you, God. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. And we cry holy, we cry holy, we cry holy. We cry holy, we cry holy, we cry holy. Yeah, I'm going to lead us in prayer, but I I have two things I feel like we're supposed to pray over. um, But I feel like that that, uh, the Lord wants to break off hopelessness. I feel like there's people in here that have hope in the Lord in certain areas of your life that maybe there's something happened. Maybe it's physically, maybe it's financial, maybe it's in your marriage, maybe it's with a a child or whatever. But we're going to pray into that today because I want you to know that with God, nothing is impossible. Come on, I'm telling you, I don't care how big it is. But that nothing, nothing, nothing is impossible. But maybe you've been waiting on this thing. Maybe it just seems like it's even going the other direction and you just feel hopeless. God's going to break that hopelessness off of you today. He's going to fill you with faith. Amen. And you're going to begin to stand and fight for that thing that you've been waiting on with the strength of the Lord. So we're going to pray into hopelessness. And then the other thing that I feel 
uh, felt like praying over some of you today is just weariness where you're fighting the battle, right? Like you're in it, you're holding on to that hope. But this has been a long battle. How I many you know some, some battles are lengthy? Amen? And, and sometimes you got to have your arms held up because they, you can't hardly hold them up on your own anymore. But God wants to just speak into you today and He wants to take away that, that weariness and He just wants to, to just release the strength and the peace of the Lord. Amen? So I just feel like the Lord's going to release not a peace that you can obtain by anything on this earth, but it's His perfect peace that's going to fill your heart. It's His peace. It's a peace that surpasses all understanding when things make no sense in the natural that you just can be like, wow, why am I so calm right now? Amen? How many of you know He's a good, he's a good Father like that? Isn't He good? Amen? So, so I'm going to ask you to do because we believe in body ministry. We believe in the, in the power of agreeing together. We're two or more agreeing my name. So I'm just going to ask you right now, if, you, if you've been struggling in an area of your life where you, felt, where you felt hopeless in that area, I just want you to raise your hand and hold it up so I'm going to have someone come along and agree with you. And then if you've been struggling in an area of, of just weariness of the battle, I want you just to raise your hand right now and hold it up high. And then I'm going to ask our church family if you would just come alongside of these men and women, Everybody begin to move. This is body ministry. We're just going to take a minute. But I want everyone to look for a hand that's raised and, and go to them. There's a, a, a nice lady back here at the back. I need, a, I need a lady to go back here and be with her uh, sitting in the very back there. If you would just lay your hands on her. And I've got a young, a young lady here with her hand raised. I need someone to come here. I need another lady. Or a, I'm pretty sure we have another lady. Amen. And right here behind you. Oh, you're there. Thank Trish. You're awesome. See, leave this stuff up to me and I'm going to mess it up probably. Amen. How many of you believe that God can do this? He's so good. And it's not going to be a, it's not going to be a lingering thing that comes. It's going to be an instant. It's going to be a suddenly. How many of you believe for the suddenly, suddenly with me right now? How many of you believe it the suddenly? Like you're just going to feel rising up in you. There's been hopelessness. You're going to have you're going to have great faith. What you're about to do is you've been waiting for rain, but it's just been completely clear. But you're about to see the cloud the size of a man's hand. And you're going to go ahead and begin to dance and rejoice for the rain because you know it's coming because that hope is being restored in you. And when you're weary, those of you that have been struggling with weariness, the peace and the strength of the Lord is about to flood you right now in Jesus' name. I just need everyone to agree with me right now. And let's just pray. If you're laying hands on them, just pray into that. Just release. Release into them and declare over them that nothing is impossible with God and begin to release just that peace, His perfect peace. So Father, we thank You for the power of prayer. We thank You for being in Your presence. We thank You that You always see what we need, God. And so Lord, in this house this morning, God, there are just people that have been struggling with certain things. They love You. They know You. They put their faith in You. But God, there's just been things that have happened that have that have gone on that's created this sense of hopelessness God and and sometimes the lies get louder than the truth but today the truth is trumping the lies and when the enemy has told them that it was impossible now the truth is being released and they are going to leave here today knowing that nothing is impossible with their God amen and God I just pray that into them right now hopelessness be broken off in Jesus name 
We just cast that off right now. We break that chain of hopelessness, that lie of the enemy be broken off right now. And we declare release of the word of the Lord, that God, your word would trump that lie. And right now, your word would rise up within them, that your arm is not shortened, that nothing is impossible with you, that there's nothing that you can't do. And faith is, is, is walking, not by sight, but by faith. It's trusting, it's believing for that thing that you cannot see yet. So God, I just pray for a rising of hope right now, God, and faith to arise up in these men and women, God. I declare that they are full of hope right now, God, and that hopelessness is broken off. And Lord, we declare over those that are weary, God, they've just been in a season of battle, God. They're tired. They're emotionally tired. They're physically tired. They've done what they've known to do to fight. And today, Father, you love them so much that you're just saying, if you invite me, I'll reign over that thing. If you'll invite me into it, I'll reign over it. If you'll invite me into the struggles in your marriages, I'll reign over it. I'll do what only I can do. If you'll invite me into your, to your family, to, the, to your children, to your work, whatever that it is, I'll reign over it in Jesus' name. So today I declare that those are weary, who have become weary in battle, that have faced great obstacles. I declare that to be broken off of them in Jesus' name right now. I declare the strength of the Lord from the soles of their feet to the top of their head as like water would fill up a jar right now. It is filling you up. The strength and the joy of the Lord is rising among you. Come to me, all you who labor and are weary, and I will give you rest. Today you're receiving the rest of the Lord and the peace of the Lord rising up within you. No longer do you have to fight by yourself, but now you've got the King fighting for you. As a matter of fact, the Lord says, this isn't even your battle, it's mine. Put it in my hands and watch what only I can do. You trust me, you listen to me, you seek me in all that you do, and I'll take that battle from your hands, saith the Lord. So God, I thank you that weariness is broken off. I thank you that you're restoring joy. I thank you that you're restoring peace. I thank you that you're restoring strength in a way that only you can. I declare that these lives, these men and women that raise their hands, God, that, that, that it, 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 it has been a suddenly, and, and they are filled with hope, and they are filled with joy, unspeakable and full of glory, overflowing in abundance because you are an abundant God. And we receive it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Welcome again to Boonville Worship Center. We are glad to be here worshiping the Lord together. It is such an honor and a privilege to be able to gather freely to declare the worth of Jesus, to sing to Him, to pray to Him, to seek His face. So I'm just honored to be a part of, of this gathering. So Lord, we just invite you, God, to come and to speak to us. Holy Spirit, God, we say come. Lord, we believe that you are still wanting to be intimately involved in our lives. God, you are living and active and desire to speak to us. You desire to release to us the full power of the gospel. And Lord, we pray that you would do that today, God, that you would be glorified, that you would open the eyes of our understanding, 
that we would love the truth, that we would seek your face, and we would be transformed by the glory of what we see in you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the, the, the last time, the last couple times I've spoke, I've spoken on prayer, and I've spoken on the, the, the call to intercession, the call to corporate prayer, um, and I really feel like that topic is still, there's still things inside of me and things that, that were in the notes um, that I did not get to cover, but I really feel like the Lord was, that that, that, that was the Lord leading me to continue to look at the topic and I, I really feel like God has given me some understanding that perhaps I haven't had before. So today I'm going to be releasing a message on understanding biblical shame and its place with humility and repentance in prayer. Understanding biblical shame. Now, at first glance, or when you first hear that, you might be thinking, wait a second, we need to run as hard and fast away from any possible experience of shame and run into the loving arms of Jesus. But there's been, there have been passages in the Scripture that I have been aware of and have read through and prayed through over many, many years. I've even taught out of these passages in the past, and there's been something striking about them that I have not known how to reconcile some of the modern, the modern way that we formulate certain things and what these scriptures explicitly say. So the primary text today is going to be out of Daniel 9, and it, it, it'll take a minute for me to get there, but oftentimes when people preach Daniel 9, they jump all the way to verse 20, and they talk about the angel Gabriel showing up. They talk about you know, intercession, they talk about seeking God, and then the angel shows up. And that's like the, the thing that we want to talk about. Like, God, show up, give divine revelation. But something has captured my heart regarding not the breaking in of the angelic, but regarding the heart of the man Daniel and how he prayed. I never want my methodology or my list of what I prioritize or think is more important, I never want that to be primarily bent on the culture I grew up, I grow up in or the culture of the church I go to or the culture of the conferences I attend. I want the conviction of my heart to be bathed in and based upon the Word of God. So if you, were, if, if you remember last time I spoke, I spoke about the Western church looking for, for keys to access anointing and power. Remember that? How in the midst of COVID, in the midst of the, you know, the, the elections, in the midst of all this stuff, the, 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 the church is trying to find, like, how do we tap into a vein of anointing and power to see things change on a larger scale? We want Him to move. We want to be able to get God's attention. We want to be able to, to, to and, and we feel like we need the anointing. 
to catch God's attention. We need the anointing to minister to him and to get him to move. So the, the primary focus often becomes the anointing. Like we are running after, do I feel it? How can I feel it? What do I need to do to feel the anointing, to, to, to catch that? But I believe that anointing, passion, and the fire of the Holy Spirit helps us to minister primarily to each other and is not primarily what God is looking for for us to minister to Him. Are you catching me? The anointing of the Holy Spirit is released upon individuals so that we, so that God through us can minister to each other whether individually in a a one-on-one session or a larger gathering, the anointing comes so that we receive ministry from God. But the anointing is not the primary thing that God is looking for when it comes to us ministering to Him. God is not looking for the anointing upon me so that I can minister to Him. So when it comes to seeking the face of God, like, where are we at? What do we think is the thing that we need? What is God looking for? Is God looking for us to do everything we can to find our way into our calling, to find our way into the anointing, to find the, find the vein of, 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 God's, of God's manifest presence, and that's what we need in order to minister to God. I believe as I stare at the Scriptures, I find something different. And one other thing that I said This last time I spoke, I talked about the word of the Lord being wait. Wait, wait on him, wait on him. When the time comes, the word of the Lord will come. That's what what I felt from the Lord. Like, God, you you are calling us to wait on you. And the message today ties into that. Because in the waiting, what do we do? So I I, I didn't get a chance to give any verses the last time I spoke, so I'm just going to read a couple Lamentations three twenty five through 26, it says, The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the person who seeks Him. It is good that He waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. And Hosea twelve six, it says, Therefore, return to God, observe kindness and justice, and wait for your God continually. Return to Him, observe kindness and justice. In other words, flesh it out in your life. Flesh out kindness and justice and wait for God continually. So I believe that humility before God and humility in prayer is more powerful than the boldest and most fervent prayers. Humility before God and in prayer is more powerful than what we perceive to be boldness and anointing in prayer. Humility We live in a day in the church where what we're seeking, we're seeking to be seen, we're seeking to be known, we we, we want to be the one that's called out of the crowds from the from the uh, the anointed leader that says, You in the back, this is this is how amazing you are, this is your calling, this is the like this is the word of the Lord over you. We we want that. And God does want to speak to us, He does want to release the word of the Lord to us. But as it pertains to seeking God's face. What he is looking for is not our confidence being built up based upon those experiences. My confidence in God should not go up because I was called out of a crowd. My confidence in God before his face should not go up because some anointed leader in the body of Christ knows my name 
or because a company of prophets have poured a gallon of anointing oil over my head and laid their hands on me and said, this is who you are. Confidence before God is built upon something else. And I, I believe that God is wanting to recalibrate us so that we can seek Him the way He wants to be sought. So our confidence in prayer should not be built upon our anointing or personal perception of our calling. Our confidence before God is based solely upon the blood of Jesus. So Hebrews 10, 19-22 says, Therefore, brethren, since you have confidence to enter the holy place by what? Since you have confidence to enter the holy place by the prophet knowing your name. No. It says, since you have confidence to enter the holy place because you're really good at fasting. We have confidence to enter the holy place because a company of prophets has called us out and they know us. We have confidence to enter the holy place because we really feel the tangible presence of God today. We feel boldness on our prayers. I feel confident in God because I feel boldness on my prayer. Is that, is that, is that what the scriptures say? It says we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. By the blood. By a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil. That is His flesh. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So it says, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. That sincerity of heart and that assurance of faith is not bolstered by me coming into my identity and knowing and knowing I'm whatever, knowing I'm amazing in God's sight, knowing that I have a calling, knowing that, that I'm anointed, knowing that, that people think I'm articulate. None of that affects it. It says we, we draw near in full assurance of faith because of the confidence in the blood. That is our access. That is our access before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That gives us entrance into his throne room where he can listen and hear. And I think we have, by, by we, I mean the church at large. I'm not looking to anybody in this church. We have a tendency to exalt the idea of boldness over humility. Because what do we want to see? If we come to a prayer meeting or we come to a conference or there's a prayer part of a conference, like what amps us up the most? Just to be honest, let's just be honest. What amps us up the most is if the man with the microphone is bold, confident, and we perceive that he's under the anointing, right, rightly or wrongly, we, we perceive that he's under the anointing, and therefore it's like, yeah, this is like, God is here. Like, th this is what God's looking for, the anointed man with a microphone, so that he can hear us and release power in our midst. So we would perhaps rather pray what feels more powerful then pray with heart seeking humility. Isaiah 66, 1 through 2 says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where then is the house you could build for me? Where is the place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, and all these things came into being, declares the Lord. 
but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Like the church of today is searching for how do we tap into the, the anointing? How do we find the vein? How do we, how, how do we see God move in our midst? And, 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 we, and we've been searching. The charismatic church, we write all these books with these fancy covers of lions and lightning and eagles. And, we, and we're like, there it is. Read the book. Get the secret key to how to pray. There's, there's something inside of me that's like, God, I, th- I, th- I, think, I, think, I think we've missed it. God, let us return to the ancient path because we think there's more power in boldness than in humility. We think there's more power in feeling like we sense the anointing than in God saying, this is where I want to look. This is where my eyes are. This is where the the eyes of the creator, the eyes of the savior of your soul are looking for this. To him who is humble, contrite of spirit and who trembles at his word. So what does that mean to be humble? To be marked by weakness and overwhelmed with our need. That's the opposite. That's the opposite of us stomping our feet and saying, COVID, you're going to disappear by this date. I I mean, God have mercy. I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. I'm just saying, God, teach us. To be contrite means to feel pain and sorrow for sins. This is what God's looking for. He's not looking for me to climb the ladder of anointing so I can name drop the, the prophets or the evangelists that I know or the ones that have laid hands on me or the ones that have prophesied greatness over me. He's looking for those that feel pain and sorrow for sins. And then to tremble at God's word. It's talking about a manifest fear of God. It's, it's actually like, if you look at the Hebrew, it's actually trembling. It's actually intrepidation. It's actually like staring at the holy God of the scriptures and saying, woe is me. Woe is me, a man of unclean lips. Woe is me to enter into the holy of holies. I have nothing. There's nothing inside of me that makes me worthy to stand before you. There's nothing inside of me. I can't name drop enough prophets or evangelists or pastors or teachers in order to gain confidence before the throne, before your throne, God. Woe is me. Woe is me. Woe is me. Woe is me. God is looking for the heart that is humble, that feels sorrow for sin, and is willing to tremble under the weight of it, to tremble under the weight of God's word and the truth of this full message. So when I look at the main scripture, the main prayers in, in scripture, I see a thread of humility and dependence on God that is oftentimes hard to see in our generation. They were not looking for their, to their own status or calling to gain confidence. If you actually look, like it, it, this takes effort, takes time. If you actually search the scriptures and look at the biblical prayers, the ones that are written down, if we actually look at them and we, and we look at the nature of them and we, and we, and we look at the, 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 who they are that prayed them. I mean, we have like the prophet Daniel, the prophet Ezekiel, the prophet Jeremiah. I mean, these are capital P prophets. Like, like, like these are the men. 
I mean, Daniel, Daniel's the dude that God said, even if Noah and Daniel and Job were to pray for this city, they would be the only ones that would be saved. I mean, maybe you are or are not familiar with that passage. But, but, but there's that verse that says, Daniel was one of the three of the most righteous men called to be a capital P prophet. And yet he did not stand. He did not stand. He was not bolstered by his calling, his title, or anything else that he could do or he could contribute. We see this with clarity. His confidence had nothing to do with himself. He looked to God for the answer. So Daniel 9. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Daniel 9 happens when Daniel was over 80 years old. Daniel was over 80. This was 20 years past chapter 8. So Daniel 9 verse 1, it says, In the year of Darius, the son of Asuras, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. And then verse 2, it says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which, were, which was reserved, revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. At this point, Daniel had spent 67 years in captivity. 67 years of his life was spent, not in Israel, not in Jerusalem, but in captivity. 67 years. He was taken into captivity to Babylon when he was somewhere between 13 and 17 years old. He was taken into captivity as a young teenager, living 67 years in captivity in a foreign land, and now, 67 years into that, he's observing in the books. He's studying the prophets. He's reading the prophecies of Jeremiah, and it says he observes. He's old, and he's still seeking the Lord. He's 80 years old, and he's still reading the Scriptures. So when it says that, that the prophet Jeremiah had declared that there would be a 70-year captivity, because of Israel's sin, there would be desolation in the land, utter destruction, and that the, that the, the nation of Israel would be led away from their land into captivity for 70 years. And if you want to know more about those details, Leviticus 26, verse 40 to 42, and Jeremiah 25, 11 through 13, that is where Jeremiah is specifying that there would be 70 years before they get freedom. And Leviticus 26 says, this is what God's looking for. In the midst of that captivity, it says, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness, which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if, they, if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that then they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember the covenant with Jacob, and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham as well, and I will remember the land. So God is saying the wickedness of Israel put them out of their own land. And God said for 70 years, this is, the, this is real. 
I am not going to let you back into the land. Desolation is going to be upon the land for 70 years. You're not coming back because of your sin. But then it says this is what God was looking for. If you confess your iniquity, your iniquity and the iniquity of your forefathers. And it says if your uncircumcised heart becomes humble, then I'll remember the covenant. Then I'll remember and at the appointed time bring you back. So that's the backstory. So Daniel 9 verse 3. So Daniel 9 observed. He observed this prophecy. He had been in the land for 67 years. What does that mean? The timeline is 70 years. He's been in the land. He's been in captivity 67 years. He's got three more years to go. So he gave, this was his heart response at the, at the age of 80. It says, I gave my attention to the Lord God. I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. An 80-year-old man who's lived most of his life in captivity because of the weight of the sins of his people. And this is his heart response when seeing how close he is to that 70-year mark. He seeks God with all of his heart, with fasting, with prayer, with supplication, with sackcloth and ashes. In verse 4, it says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. And then it says, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Verse 5, it says, We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Verse 7, Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord. And this is what jumped out to me right here, verse 7. But to us, open shame. Righteousness belongs to you, O God. But to us, open shame. As it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds, which they have committed against you. Verse 8, open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. So here's a question. I mean, that, 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 fra that phrasing, that, that statement, open shame belongs to us, just leapt off the page. Like, God, what, is it, like, what does this mean? Because we live in a day when it's like, Break that shame off. Break the shame off. God loves you. So where does this fit? I mean, if, if you want insight into, into who I am and how my heart works and how my brain works, this is it. I run across these phrases and I'm like, God, what is this thing called biblical shame? And where does it fit inside this righteous man's intercession? And how does it compare to the modern way that we pray and our modern seeking after God to move in our land to the, the God of covenant to, 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 to act, to restore, to release revival. So what is shame? I think if we don't really think about it, we probably come up with a slightly sloppy definition and we just say, it's the icky feeling that dominates me and I don't know how to get rid of it, right? And we live in a culture in a day that associates that 
with trauma, and therefore, we basically want to say that my self-identity or my self-confidence needs to be bolstered up, right? I need to know that I'm awesome and, and handsome. And so we want that self-confidence. So we live in a culture that says, that says at all costs, reject shame and receive the compliment of how awesome you are. The culture, that, 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 that's the culture we live in. And I feel like on some level, sometimes that slips its way into the church where it's like we want to jump over shame. Be like, no, 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 no. That, that, that doesn't belong to me. That doesn't belong to me because of, because of my identity in Christ. And I, I want to tease this out because I, I really feel like there's a deep connection to this and the godly prescription for prayer, humility, repentance. So shame is the painful feeling of knowing we have done something disgraceful. It, it, it's a painful feeling of knowing I've done something disgraceful. In other words, if I act shamefully, then I feel shame. If I act shamefully, then shame is going to be what I feel. If I stub my toe, what do I feel? Pain. The feeling of pain is not pleasant, but it is a natural, it's going to happen. If you punch me, I'm going to feel pain. It's going to happen. So if I act shamefully, then I'm going to feel shame. Unless, unless I do everything in my power to push away all negative feelings about who I am, about my past, about what I've done. I, I push all that down and I just, and, and it's just this self-affirmation of I'm awesome, I'm awesome, I'm awesome. So if I continually act, if I continually pursue something in life that is shameful, then if I am pushing that shame down, if I'm trying to bury it and I'm pushing that shame down, then I am on some level trying to silence my conscience and to say it's really not that bad. It's, it's really not shameful to do this. Everybody does it. Like, all men look at pornography. I mean, it's not shameful. Like, why would it be shameful? Break off that shame. Break off the shame and do what you want. Cast it off. Right? The Bible talks about casting off restraint in the pursuit of sin. And, and they, it, speaks, it speaks of that negatively. So where does shame fit? So guilt. What is guilt? Guilt is the fact of having committed wrong. The fact. Oftentimes we, we look at guilt, shame, and condemnation and we're like, eh, they're all the same thing. Guilt is the fact of having done wrong. What is condemnation? Condemnation is the render to render a verdict of guilt. It's the legal decision of being pronounced guilty. So shame is the feeling, the painful feeling of knowing I've done something wrong. Guilt is the fact of having done something wrong. And condemnation is the verdict against me that legal decision of saying, yes, you have indeed done something wrong. So on some level, we don't like talking about shame because we either personally have felt overwhelming shame over, shame over past sins, or we know people that are under that weight of it, that icky weight of like, I, I sinned years ago and I, I, I can't forgive myself. I don't know how to get out of the shame. There are multiple types of shame and I want to cover that. So the New Testament talks about worldly sorrow that leads to death and godly sorrow that leads to repentance. 
2 Corinthians 7, verse 9 through 10. It says, now, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to repentance. For you were made to have godly sorrow, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Verse 10, for godly sorrow produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world brings about death. Godly sorrow produces repentance without regret. What does that mean? Without regret, it means feeling no pain of mind on account of something done or experienced in the past, especially with no wish that it had been done any different. You might have to go back and listen to this to catch what I'm saying. Godly sorrow produces a repentance without regret. Godly sorrow produces a repentance that does not lead to that overwhelming feeling of lingering guilt and shame. Godly sorrow, in other words, a godly shame, that feeling, a godly shame produces a repentance that is without regret. In other words, I'm free. I'm free. When I think about the sins I've committed in the past, I am not overwhelmed with negative sentiment. I am not overwhelmed with negativity in my heart about what I've done. Why? Why? It says, Godly sorrow produces repentance without regret. The sorrow of the world brings about death. The feeling of shame, that negative feeling that doesn't lead to repentance, but leads to just feeling icky, that feeling of shame produces death. If Christ is not in the picture, if the gospel is not front and center, then what I have done wrong in my past will weigh on me so heavy, it will, it will, it will produce deep regret and will ultimately lead to death because the weight of sin is that heavy. If the gospel is front and center, if we understand the nature and character of God, then we can feel the godly shame, the actual feeling of pain over the sins we've committed, come to the cross, receive 100% full breakthrough, walk away and not have regret. Are you, are you hearing me? This, this is freedom. This is freedom. Godly sorrow, like godly shame, is supposed to lead us to repentance. It makes us feel the weight of our transgression, acknowledge it, which is repentance. Mark 1, 14 through 15. It says, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, I love these, I love, absolutely love these summary statements. Summary statements in the Bible are good. Find them. Like, we want to peer into what they were preaching. Look for the summary statements. It says, Jesus came into Galilee. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Amen. Sweet. What was he saying? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe. Like that is the call. And I have like 10 other verses that say the same thing that I don't have time to quote. Repent and believe the gospel. Godly shame 
is part of that repent. It's part of that first part. Repent and believe the gospel is godly shame. I wish I had about two hours with Q&A time and ministry. That, that would be my preference right now. But I don't think I do. There's so much to be said. Jeremiah 3.24 says, But the shameful thing has consumed the labor of our fathers since our youth. Their flocks and herds, their sons and their daughters, let us lie down in our shame. Let our humiliation cover us. This is the prophet Jeremiah. Let us lie down in our shame. Let our humiliation cover us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers, from our youth and even to this day, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. If you will return, O Israel, declares the Lord, then you should return to me. And if you will put away your detestable things from my presence, and I will not waver, and you will swear, as the Lord lives, in truth and in justice and in righteousness, then the nations will bless themselves in him. And in him they will glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground. That's a familiar phrase, right? I've heard that many, 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 many times through in charismatic churches. Break up your fallow ground. And do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your heart, men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn and with none to quench because of the evil of your deeds. Like, these are the options. We either in humility say, God, what I've done to me belong open shame, God. I, I, I'm just going to lie down in my shame. I, I, I got nothing to contribute. There's nothing in my lineage, not the righteousness of my father or grandfather. There's nothing I can contribute, God. To me belong open shame. So God, I'm going to acknowledge my sin, not unto hating myself, not unto suicidal thoughts. How many of you know that those feelings of self-hatred or those lingering, even if they're not strong, maybe they're small, those lingering thoughts of like suicidal thoughts when we think about what we've done or how we've messed up our life, how many of you know that self-hatred, by definition, it demands that we are focused on ourselves, which is actually self-exalting. It's actually saying, I have power over myself and I've messed it up and therefore I'm the, I'm the arbiter of justice and I'm, gonna, I'm going to hurt myself because of what I've done. And the whole thing is just me, 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 me. My sin, myself, my pain, my, 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 my. The gospel is that same feeling of regret, that same feeling of, God, I've done something. I've done things that have transgressed your holiness on levels that I don't even understand. But you're in the picture, so repent and believe. If, if I actually put my faith in that belief, where there's no confidence, I have no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in, in what I have or haven't done to attract God's favor. Where I'm just saying, God, I come as I am. I feel, I feel. I feel the weight of my sin. And I say, God, rescue me. Rescue me. Because without you, I have nothing. Rescue me. Rescue me from the real weight of the real sin that is weighing on my soul. That if I don't find the rescue of God, the Bible says the only thing 
that will come if God doesn't rescue us is wrath. The fury of the Lord of hosts. So it's saying, God, rescue me. Open shame belongs to me. We're so quick to, to, to jump over the shame and just say, God, oh, you're awesome. In the choosing of Israel, it's, it explicitly says God did not cho choose them because they were awesome. It says he chose them because they were small and weak and ugly. So my confidence shouldn't be in how awesome I am. My confidence in, is in his blood. It's in how awesome he is. So 2 Thessalonians 3:14 through 15 says, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him, so that he will be put to shame. You do not regard him as an enemy, though, but admonish him as a brother. Follow me. Have you ever gone through the Bible and just looked up every verse on shame? Like, this, I, I don't want my belief system to be based upon just things that we accumulate, ideas that we accumulate, and just leave it at that. I always want to return to the Scripture and say, God, what does your word say about this? I'm seeing this word shame show up. Does it fit? Where does it fit, God? So here in the New Testament, it says, don't associate with this guy that's not, uh, that's not obeying so that he'll be put to shame. And we live in a culture that says, no shame, no shame, no shame. Do whatever, do, 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 do whatever you need to do to, to, to not feel shame. To not feel, but again, what is shame? It's the feeling of having done wrong. And, we, and the culture is saying, do everything possible to not feel that you've done anything wrong. That sounds to me like we're running as fast as we can to sear our conscience. Where God is saying, yes, it's right to feel. It's right to feel the pain of sin that we commit. But then it says, again, in the end it says, but admonish him as a brother. What does that mean, admonish? That means continually call him forth. Call forth, righteous, 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 come. Come, return to God, return to God. Do what you need to do to, to run after God, get out of your sin. So at the same time, we're saying, you're going to feel some shame because you've done something wrong. But I'm not casting the shame on you so that you feel awful about yourself. I'm admonishing you to stop doing the thing that is shameful so that you can break out of the shame. Because if I leave that open door open and I continually do something shameful, I could go to a thousand charismatic conferences and have people call me out and tell me how awesome I am, but that's not going to break off the shame. Because real shame is the real feeling of having done something wrong. So either I have to find freedom in the blood or I have to sear my conscience. Those are the only two options. Either I find freedom in the blood and, and, I, and, I, and I receive the fullness of the proclamation of the gospel, which includes, God, I've sinned. I've sinned and it's nasty. I've sinned and it, and it hurts. It pains me, God. I don't even understand what I've done. I just, I, I know it's not right. The gospel is acknowledging the pain, acknowledging the shame, acknowledging what? The guilt and the condemnation. We acknowledge that we are guilty and we acknowledge that outside of the blood we are condemned. And that's the gospel. Repent and believe. So the bigger problem is not the presence or absence of feeling shame. The problem is do I understand and have faith in the gospel that frees me from both the guilt and condemnation and the shame. I'm going to say it another way. Before repentance and belief in the gospel, we are biblically and factually guilty, yes? We stand condemned, yes? And we should feel shame for the sins committed against God, yes? If we are in sin and don't feel shame, 
We are silencing our conscience, and that is a terrifying place to be. After repentance and belief in the gospel, we are biblically and factually forgiven. After repentance and belief in the gospel, we are freed from all condemnation and accepted into God's beloved family regardless of our past sins. And therefore, the inheritance of what we gain in Christ should overwhelm us. It should overwhelm our soul, not with feelings of shame for the past, but the feeling of present redemption, reconciliation with God, and the future of eternal inheritance in Him. In other words, shame and condemnation have no place in the heart of a believer after we've repented. And I think this is important, because oftentimes we don't actually talk about that hinge point of repentance. We're just like, no shame. There's, there's, there's you know, uh, Lord, stop that clock. Can someone unplug it? There's so much here. Romans 8, 1 through 4. This is the famous verse that probably most of us or all of us are familiar with. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ. In Christ. But s- sometimes we're quick to just say, no condemnation, no condemnation, no condemnation. But there's actually a door. That verse has a door. That verse has a gate. The, 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 the gate is narrow. The door is small. And it's saying there's no condemnation if I'm in Christ. I have to be in Him for there to be no condemnation. Again, what is condemnation? That legal declaration that yes, you, have, you are guilty and you have sinned. So if I want that legal declaration of I'm not guilty, then the only way to get that is in Christ. The only way to get that is through the narrow door, through that narrow way, the narrow path, which includes, God, I feel it. I feel my shame. I acknowledge my sinfulness. I don't care what the world says. The world could say, the world can, the world, I mean, I don't care if doctors say it. I don't care if professors say it. I don't care if everyone says that, that pornography is amazing, masturbation's healthy. God, I'm going to feel. I'm going to feel, feel the weight. And God say that in, in, in order for this, this, the feeling of weight to be lifted off of my soul, I find that in Christ. I find that in acknowledging my sin and saying, God, forgive me. But faith in the gospel is also faith in the power of God to make that proclamation of no condemnation. Is God powerful enough? Is the blood enough to break off of your emotions and your soul the feelings of guilt from your past? Is the blood enough? Is the blood enough to break off of your soul anything that weighs on you? It could be abortion. It could be people that have done awful things to children, embezzlement, murder, abusing your wife, all the different things, no matter what it is, the weight of those things and the, the emo- that emotional thing that can live on us for years on end. If there's godly sorrow, it says it produces a repentance without regret. The without regret is, I, I, it's no longer there. That pain, that weight on my soul from the sins that I've committed for for decades, it's no longer there. I'm free. There's true freedom where there's true repentance. If, if, if If there's not godly sorrow, if there's not godly shame, 
if there's not godly admission of guilt, then the, that feeling of weight of sin upon us produces death. We do not get free. That feeling, those negative sentiments, that, that, that thing that stirs up self-hatred, that stirs up the, 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 the thoughts of suicide or whatever, however else we medicate that, those feelings aren't lifted until we find ourselves in Christ. And when we find ourselves in Christ, by faith, we can take this verse to the bank. By faith, we can say, repentance without regret. If we've repented, then we can truly live without regret. So I'm no longer overwhelmed by what I've done or how many years I spent doing it. Because now I'm in Christ. In Him, I'm a new creation. He, he, is, I, I, he has obtained for me an inheritance. I didn't earn the inheritance by going to all the right conferences. In Him, He has obtained for me an inheritance through His blood. And therefore, I have confidence. There's so much more here. But we'll leave it at that. So just, Craig, I invite you to come up. I believe the most powerful thing we can do is not to twist something so that I feel better. It's not to undermine parts of what the Word says so that I feel better. The most powerful thing that we can do is humbly receive the Word. Right, that verse in James, receive the Word with humility. Receive the Word implanted with humility. So we, I just invite you all to stand. So what is our response? I think on the one side, if we have felt bolstered up, if we have felt our confidence before God is built upon our own things, our anointing, our boldness, our calling, our gifting, our, and you want to just come before the Lord and say, God, I'm sorry, then I invite you to come up and just acknowledge that. Say, God, my confidence before you can only be on your blood. And if you're here and you feel you felt that shame, that weight of past sin, and either you haven't repented of it or you feel like you have repented of it, but it's still that thing's still lingering, and you want prayer, I also invite you to come forward. So I invite you to come forward if you, if you feel that weight, that weight of guilt, that weight of shame, and you want to either repent, or if it's there and it shouldn't be there, and you want it broken off, then I invite you to come. So God, we welcome you. God, give us confidence, not in ourselves, but in the blood. God, we need you. None of us can perform our way into the anointing. None of us can perform our way into forgiveness, into your kingdom. God, we cry out. God, we cry out for revelation of the power of your blood that delivers us from sin and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Come, Holy Spirit. God, I pray that the focus of our confidence would shift into complete dependence upon you, God. The flesh profits nothing, but you have done a mighty work, God, to, to bring us into your family, and we say yes to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us this week. Until next time.